Heavenly Father, thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and the source from which we commit sin. We pray, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, that we would be focusing in on what it says, allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us from what is communicated to us. And as we look at the important aspect of our mind and how the renovation process takes place, may we recognize that this is what you've designed for us as believers in your Son, the process by which we stop thinking like this world and start thinking the way you think. And as a result of thinking how you think, to carry out your will and glorify you. Thank you that you've given us all that we need in Christ to understand your word and then to carry it out by depending upon what you said in your word to do the work for us on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Let's do a little review since we've been away for a little bit. Uh, We had a game night two weeks ago, and last week we canceled because of sickness. So Romans 12, 1 to 2 is where we started this whole process. And this is about lesson 8 in the, in the series. Romans 12, 1 to 2 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove that which is, or the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Two verses. In the first one, it's a command to start doing what Paul is already doing, and that is to present your bodies as a spiritually living sacrifice. You are not spiritually alive unless you've been born from above. John chapter 3 verse 3 through 16 gives you that whole idea. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and asks him, how can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb again and be born a second time? And Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel, but you do not know these things? See, he should have known it, but he was focused on what he could see and feel in this world and not on the spiritual truth that the law that he taught was teaching and representing. And so Jesus says, no, a man must be born from water and spirit. And the water birth is referring to physical birth. It's identifying you as a physical human being with a body and a soul. But the spirit is the critical one. Because Jesus says, without a human spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. How do you have a spirit born in you? Depend upon Jesus to be your savior. If you believe that Jesus has taken away your sins, that he paid the penalty, that brought harmony between you and God, and set you free from the law of sin and death, then you are a child of God. You are a spiritually alive being. Now for you, the question comes down to whether you're operating spiritually or what the Bible says is carnal, carnally. Carnally, Carnal operation is the same type of operation we would have before we accepted Christ as our Savior, as if we didn't have a human spirit alive in us, and as if we didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So when Paul commands these Roman believers to present their bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, he identifies through this word living that, he's, that we are supposed to present these physical bodies, which are spiritually alive, as spiritually living sacrifices to God. What's he saying? We're supposed to operate spiritually, dependent upon the Holy Spirit leading our human spirit rather than our eyes and our f- senses and our feelings and our emotions to guide us through this world. It's what you're depending upon that makes the difference. Then we get the second verse which we've identified already through the language, says, and stop being conformed, molded from the outside by external pressure to look a certain way on the outside. Stop being conformed to this world 
but on the other hand, be transformed. And we identified that word was the changing from within that was manifestly outside. The word transform there is metamorphose. It means a change on the inside or to change from within so that what's on the outside changes as a result. Now, if you just change what's on the outside, do you really change on the inside? No. You do this every day when you get ready for school. You put on a different pair of clothes, hopefully. Some of you teenage boys might just go ahead and say, no, nah, these are good. I wore them yesterday, slept in them. No reason to change. Okay? But realistically, we want to put on a new, fresh pair of clothes every day, right? Mm -hmm. Girls are like, uh-huh. Guys, did you catch that? Girls are like, uh-huh. <laughs> Girls want guys in clean clothes. Okay? It's okay to get them dirty. Just change them after you're done getting dirty. All right. That's over with. Whew, awkward. Okay. So, we're to stop being molded on the outside. And every day that you put clothes on, you change the way you look on the outside a little bit at least, right? You change how you represent yourself. You can be a different type of person on the outside based upon the different types of clothes you wear. Think about the different groups you have at school. Groups such as the jocks, maybe. Do you guys have skaters? Are skaters still a thing? No, skaters have died. All right, so let's go like this. So we got jocks and hipsters. Is that a thing? Yeah. Hipsters a thing? See, I was, a, I was before the hipster thing. Like, I don't even understand hipster. I see a guy in skinny jeans going, dude, wrong department, okay? Wow, the preps and everyone else. And if you're homeschooled, you're like, that's how I dress every day. <laughs> Here we go. All right, now we got it. We got the hipsters. We got the rednecks. We got the preps, all right? Each one looks different. Okay? Now, if you want to go hang out in the redneck group, what might you do? Change. You paint your neck red. Or if you're me, just live in the summer. And you'll be sunburned. You'll be red in your neck. <laughs> so if you want to fit into a different group, what might you do to change your outside appearance? Change the types of clothes. Redneck, what do you wear? Boots, camo, and jeans. You got it, all right? Cut off. If it's torn off, that's even better. You know, you got to find, if you're really going to fit in, some sort of lifted vehicle that's all muddy, yeah. right? <laughs> so let's say on Tuesday, you're like, I want to be a redneck today. <laughs> so you, you, you change your outside appearance by putting on different clothes. Does that change who you are on the inside? No. Let's say you go to a church service on Sunday morning and you hear a pastor say, do different things than you did before. Go and sin no more. Or be more loving or serve more. Or start things more often. Don't be afraid more. If you just say, okay, today when I wake up, I'm going to put on not being afraid. Does that really change who you are on the inside? No. All it changes is what happens on the outside the same idea. That's conformity to this world. Being molded by external pressure to look a certain way and be a certain way, but it has no bearing on who you actually are. In fact, for believers, you are something entirely different than what the outside external world will see if you are conformed to them. You may look like a person that is a part of this world system, but the reality is you're a person who's a part of God's family on the inside. 
But what if your actions on the outside don't show that? What does the world see? What does the world see? They see that you're one of them. And so how do you change that? How do you make the difference? How do you not just put on a different pair of clothes each day or put on a different attitude each day so that your outside is represented differently? So the Bible says that we can't just expect to change the outside and think that that changes the inside. That doesn't work. It doesn't go in outside to in. It goes inside to out. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's about what you think. Not what you wear, not how you look on the outside. So the battle isn't about <clears throat> whether you look like someone outside in this world or not. The battle is about your mind. How do you think? Do you think like the world thinks? Do you think like God thinks? Do you get your information from this world or do you get your information from God? Those are our two sources. Now, we've gone through this, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this, except to remind you that the renewing of your mind phrase right there means to take out the old things and replace them with new things. It's renovation. What are you renovating? You're renovating your mind. You're renovating what you think, which was conformed to the world, and so who you are as a child of God looks like a world individual because you're believing things the world is teaching. And you have to take those things out and replace them with what God says about each of those different beliefs that you had before. And the purpose of that is so that you will know what God's directive will is, so that you will know in a moment, any given moment in time, as you walk in fellowship with God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, you'll know what God wants you to do in that moment. Now, it's always good to know what we should do, right? I know we've, we've oftentimes, and I know I have, and I know you guys have too, you get in this place where you're like, I have no idea what to do here. I've been in this place like 12 times the last four days, at least. And I love that place. You know why? Because when I find out and come to terms and sense with why I'm in that position, the only reason I'm in that position is because I haven't been following God to begin with. Because if I'm following God, he shows me what to do. But if I'm in that place where I don't know what to do, what that tells me is I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I haven't been presenting my bodies as living sacrifice. And if I get into a place where I know, don't know what to do, how to fix the situation I'm in, how to understand different things, then I know the one who can give me that information and lead me the way he wants to, not the way I want to. And that's where David records the words in the Psalms where God says that to be still and know that he is God. Recognize who God is in that moment. So when you, next time you find out, you find yourself in a place where you don't know what to do. You're stuck in a dilemma. Be still and remember who God is. Recognize that it's his job to tell you what to do, not your job to tell yourself. Look at these attributes on the top of the board. Remember those attributes. And in that moment, you're probably going to find yourself convicted of some sin. Confess it. The Father restores you immediately to fellowship with him and then move on. Let him lead you. And next time you fail, do it again. See, this is really a simple thought process, right? Oh, I sinned. Confess, move on. Oh, did it again. Confess, move on. Oh, did a different sin. Confess, move on. It's the same thing over and over again. And the more time we spend practicing it, the better we get at recognizing when we've left fellowship with God for something this world teaches is better than fellowship with God, which is nothing, ultimately. 
<clears throat> everything comes down to the reality in your mind, what you choose to value in a given moment. <clears throat> Do you remember the parable we started, looked at Matthew 15, 1? The parable where the Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus and say, hey, how come your disciples are not washing their hands before they eat, which is the tradition of our elders? And Jesus turns to them and says, why do you transgress the law that God the Father handed down to Moses for the tradition of the elders? And he goes in and says, it's not what goes into your body that defiles you, it's what comes out. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, we have his statement. Peter asked Jesus, after the scribes and Pharisees got upset, the disciples come to him and say, hey, we don't understand what you just said. Can you explain it? And so Jesus explains it in Matthew 15, 15 to 18. And Jesus starts with saying, hey, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you still not recognize what it is that I am saying? I'm speaking spiritual things. You've got to understand them spiritually, he's saying. But you're not. You understand them physically through the senses that you've got representing from the things of this world. So he says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? What's that? The physical digestive process. We all know that happens. That's part of this world system. It's part of humanity. It's part of us as humans. But look what Jesus does now. He stops talking about the physical digestive system and turns and now talks about the spiritual reality of where our actions come from. He says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Now, I was sick last week. Things came out of my mouth that were not supposed to come out of my mouth. And I'm not talking about words. Okay? They didn't come from my heart. They came from my stomach and my intestines. So we know clearly that Jesus isn't talking about us getting sick here. He's talking about something that's not physical. Because the physical digestive process would say if you've eaten something that's bad and your body needs to get rid of it, there's two approaches. You get to drift. And so as... You've got this statement here. You have to recognize he's talking about spiritual truth, something that's referring to what we can't see and feel in this world, but when he tells us, we can recognize it if we're operating spiritually. And so he says, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. It's what comes from your heart that defiles you, not eating with unwashed hands. Now, what I don't want you to do is go back home tonight uh, or tomorrow when you wash your hands before dinner. Your parents say, hey, go wash your hands. It's time for dinner. And go, oh, my youth pastor says I don't have to. In fact, Jesus said, I don't have to wash my hands. Because <laughs> he holds a lot more authority than me, just for the record. <laughs> in case you were wondering. That's not what Jesus was getting at. It's a good idea to wash your hands in this human world. Things are dirty and smelly and gross, right? Okay, so it's a good idea. But Jesus isn't saying, no, you don't have to wash your hands before you eat. That doesn't do anything to you. No, he's focused more on the heart. And he says, for out of the heart, in Matthew 15, 19, and 20, for out of the heart come the evil things, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. He's not talking now about the physical defilement of getting germs in your body because you haven't washed your hands. He's talking about what your, where your actions come from. Where does he say they come from? They come out of the mouth, but their source is the heart. And so we find the mouth being representative here of your interaction with the world. The things that you see and perceive in this world go into the mouth, go into your thought process, and have to be dealt with. And whatever you choose to give value to in that moment becomes a belief or something you're depending upon. 
And as you depend upon it, that makes it a belief. It gets stored in your heart, which we'll show the diagram in just a minute. And then your heart says, when this circumstance comes up, we run this belief through the pipeline. And so when the circumstances come up, oh, I know what to do here. I do the action that I already had stored in my heart. And that comes out of, from your heart, out of your mouth, back into the world where the world sees your actions. But the actions are the result of what's in your heart. And that's why the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Who you are is based on who you, or what you think. At least who you view yourself as. Who you are in reality, though, is different than what you think, because you don't determine reality. So you have your version of reality, which says that what I think is who I am. And you have the Bible, which teaches that your heart, what you believe and depend upon, reveals who you are being. But you also have the scripture, which says that you are a child of God if you've been born again, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior. And so the job here is you've got your position in Christ, this new status or status as a believer in Christ, God's child, but you may not believe that you're God's child because you feel bad about things that you do. And the difference is in who God says you are versus how you're operating. And that's why we have <clears throat> this diagram with the cross and the circles, because this talks about how you exist, what God says who you are, holy, blameless in Christ and this is talking about how you operate. Are you, are you living the same way that God says you are? If he says you're holy and blameless, are you operating in this life like you've been set apart by God to do good works? Are you operating this life as if when a standard is put in front of you, you say, I'm going to follow that standard because then I'm going to be blameless as my Heavenly Father has declared me to be. So there's a difference between who you are and how you walk. How you operate. Least difference between your position in Christ and your fellowship with God. And so we get this whole equation out here. And we've started slowly breaking this down. <clears throat> and this is still our review. We've got the input that we, input we get through the mouth from the world. It's data that we get through our senses. We've got five senses. They give us an enormous amount of data. Most of our computers couldn't even handle the amount of data we get through our senses at the same time. We get so much data. There's so many things going on in our brain cells, our neurons. Neuron is a fancy term for brain cell. And so you get, you get data that comes in through your senses. It gives you this raw data that now you take that data and you start to mold over and figure out what it is. And if you've seen it before, you have information you can compare it to and say, hey, I've seen that color before. Oh, I've seen those people before. Oh, if that person has a name, and I know it. It's in my Wernicke's area in my brain. Just back corner. Starts with a W, by the way. It's really weird. Wernicke's, but it starts with a W. Some foreign name. Okay, brilliant guy, apparently, because he studied the brain. So, anyway. <coughs> So you recognize you as this person, the form, you see that person, you go, oh, that's this person, I know their name. If you don't know that person's name, you've got to acquire that person's name, and so you have to get more information. But as this process happens, you gain, you turn the data into information, the information into knowledge, where you, now you understand it, and now you have stuff you can choose what to do with. You now can choose to say, I know this information, what am I going to do with it? Does this information matter to me? Is it valuable? 
Do I need this? And all this happens in a chronon of time. A chronon is the smallest amount of time measurable. I can't even describe how small it is because it's nearly impossible. It's the smallest amount of time. Have you ever had a stopwatch? We used to do this in class when we were bored. I had a stopwatch on my wrist, actually. And uh, I would turn the beep off on my watch, and I'd switch it to the stopwatch mode, and I'd press start and stop as fast as I could. And I would try to get as close to double zero as I possibly could. I got to zero eight one time. That was pretty good, I thought. Fast as I could go. Start stop. That's not even a chronon of time. It's smaller than that. So in this instantaneous, almost chronon of time, we have all of these things factoring through. Your brain has already knows how you are going to respond and want to deal with information. And it gets you to this place where you have a plus sign, and now you have to choose what you're going to do with this information. Someone comes to class tomorrow and says, hey, do you have the homework from last night? I didn't do it. Can I copy your answers? Your brain runs all these electrical signals through it and says, there's all these different morals here. There's all these different things. What if I do it and they don't like me? What if I do it they like me? What if I get it wrong? What if the teacher finds out? What if I get caught? Wait, it's still wrong. I don't know if I want to do this. What if, oh, I do like this person. I want to do this. And maybe they like me better. And you go through this whole process. Could you imagine if we had every statement your brain was functioning through simultaneous? I had to make those statements as fast as they came out, one after the other but your brain functions a lot of those at the same time, which is why it's so amazing. <clears throat> and you get to that point where now you have to make a choice. And you look at that person and you go, yes, you can copy my paper. And you get done and you go, huh, why did I say yes? And as you think about it, you go, man, I just wanted them to like me better. I don't want to be that guy who said, no, you can't copy my paper. That's cheating. I don't want to be made fun of. And as you start to think about these things, you start to unravel the motivation, the reason why you gave value to something that God says is unvaluable. I used to use Lion as an example. This is my new pet thing. You're going to hear about cheating the whole rest of the year. And you're going to feel great about it. <coughs> When you choose to depend upon knowledge, if you, if you recognize that cheating makes this person like you more, or think that's true at least, that if, if I let this person copy my homework and cheat, that they'll like me better, then you're valuing them liking you based upon your actions rather than based upon who you are. And what you valued in that moment said, okay, you can copy my homework. And so you depended upon knowledge that says, if I let this person copy off my homework, they'll like me better. Now, do you know whether they'll like you better or not if they let you copy, if you let them copy? You don't know that for sure, but you're hoping, right? Hypothetically, of course. What's your real desire there? It's not to cheat. It's to be liked. Something we all have. This natural innate desire for us to be liked by other people. I don't really know anyone who genuinely likes to be disliked by other people. I've had people say it to me, oh, I love when people dislike me. But you know what, deep down, I don't think they believe that. I don't think that's really true. Because at some point, they're going to come to this place where they're so lonely, 
are hurt because they have no one to turn to. When you take knowledge and depend upon it, that forms a belief, that produces an action. This is what we call protocol, something you do when a situation comes up. Okay, follow this one. On the count of three, I want you to answer this, all right? Here is the statement. You get up in the middle of the night, you step into the bathroom, and when you turn the light switch on, your clothes burst into flames. What do you do? One, two, three. Protocol. Stop, drop, and roll. What did you say? Someone else said something over here. What did you say? Turn on the water? Did anyone say turn off the light switch? Flame on, flame off. Oh, okay. So, but you, got, you guys got the idea. When this situation arrives, when you are on fire, you've been trained to stop, drop, and roll or get into water, which is probably something you made up on your own, right? No one said, okay, if you catch on fire, find some water and get in it, right? It's not a bad idea if there's water nearby, but if you are of driving age and you're driving down the road with your clothes on fire, trying to find some water to jump into, probably not the best approach. <laughs> That's a protocol. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And someone has said that the best way to put your fire out that's on your person is to stop on the ground and roll over a bunch of times to try and squish the oxygen so there's no more combustion. If there's no more combustion, there's no more fire. And you continue to live. So if you value living, you'll stop, drop, and roll. Now, if you don't value living, you'll be like, you okay. <laughs> ashes, ashes, we all fall down. A little morbid, I'm sorry. Okay, so <clears throat> that's a protocol. That's what I'm talking about. This is how we define and build protocols. We learn things, and we depend upon them in a given situation. That's how it works. Next week, we're going to look at this. The mind. Not next week, sorry. Next week's fall festival. Take a flyer home with you. Right here. If your parents have questions... Have them get a hold of me. Let's pray and you can be dismissed. <coughs> Father, thank you for your word which enables us to be transformed by teaching us the truth that is in this world in your kingdom that we can't see but that we can perceive through the teaching from your word. May we trust that and depend upon it, knowing that it's absolutely true and will always produce the best result for us. In Jesus' name, amen.